If you have your message notes out, I encourage you to uh, pull those out if you don't have them out. We're diving back into the book of Ruth. We're, we're in a study on the book of Ruth. Today's message I've titled Benefits of Grace. Uh, this, this week, studying this chapter, it's become one of the most beautiful chapters in the entire Bible to me when you get a picture of what this chapter is all about. It is remarkable. It is incredible. It is rich. It is symbolic. It is, it is just beautiful of how God wants to treat you and I, if we will live under the new covenant of His grace. It's powerful when you live under the new covenant of God's grace, what your life could look like, what is potential. And that's what this chapter is all about today. And I'm going to show you that. The book of Ruth, we began last week. If you missed last week, would encourage you to catch on with that message. You can get it online or through our app or, or website or YouTube, different uh, areas you can listen to it. The book of Ruth is a very short book in the Old Testament. It follows the book of Judges. It happens during the time period of Judges, which is a very tragic, very chaotic period in the nation's uh, history of Israel. Uh, a lot of up and down, a lot of just rebellion, oppression, just, just different things they went through, and that's when this book takes place. There is no supernatural miracles in the book of Ruth. It's a very ordinary, very plain book to show us that God can work through the very ordinary events of our life. We don't have to have dramatic stories in our life for God to work through. He can work through very ordinary stories of our life uh, and even painful and tragic stories of our life, but it doesn't have to be some supernatural dramatic experience for God to work in your life. It's the story of a family, Elimelech and his wife Naomi, who moved from Bethlehem to Moab because of a famine. In Bethlehem, they take matters in their own hand. They fail to trust God, and they, and they go try to provide for themselves apart from God. Uh, his two sons married two Moabite women, Ruth and Orpah, and then all three of the men in the family die. And Naomi is left as a widow with these two daughter-in-laws who are also widows. And so she makes a decision to head back to Bethlehem. Uh, her oldest daughter-in-law, Orpah, decides to return home to her family. Ruth decides to stay with her. And today we have their journey back into uh, Bethlehem trying to reestablish their life. Naomi, as a widow, remember at the end of the chapter last week, she was very angry, very bitter, very confused, kind of blaming God for her circumstances. We see her begin to see the big picture today. Uh, in today's chapter, she begins to see, okay, no, God didn't abandon me. God was working behind the scenes. I just didn't see it at first. You begin to see that take place uh, today. But what really is so special about this chapter is it's a picture of how Jesus wants to treat us. This entire chapter is in the Bible because Jesus wants you to know what is available to you. That he can take somebody who does not deserve it, somebody who is not good enough, somebody who doesn't qualify, somebody who, who, who has no basis for, for being blessed in their life according to their efforts, their work, their past, and absolutely pour his grace onto their life. And that's what this chapter is all about. It's a picture to us of how Jesus wants to treat you and how Jesus wants to treat me. Very beautiful picture in the Bible. It's very rich. And so let's dive into it. We're going to read through the entire chapter uh, two today and just pull out all of the symbolism, all of the richness. You see Jesus very clearly in this book, and it is beautiful. In verse one, it says, now, Naomi had a relative on her husband's side, a man of standing in Hebrew, that is great wealth, great position, great influence from the clan of Elimelech, that is her husband who passed away in Moab, and his name was 
Boaz. Boaz. Now, one of the things we said about the book of Ruth is the names in the book of Ruth all have definitions and all have meaning. And when you study the definition, it adds richness to the book. It it gives you nutritional value that you wouldn't normally see when you really dig into the definitions of the name. Boaz means in him is strength. In him is strength. So let me ask you a question. Who else do we know where that definition is also true about in him is strength? Jesus. Boaz is one of the clearest pictures of Jesus in the Old Testament. When we are weak, he is strong. In him is strength. One of the beautiful things about the Old Testament is God has hidden portraits of his son all throughout the Old Testament. There are these glimpses in the shadow symbolism of Jesus everywhere in the Old Testament. And all theologians agree that Boaz is a very clear Christ figure in the Old Testament. He's a very clear picture of Jesus. When you look at his life and what he does and how he responds to Ruth, it is a clear picture of the way Jesus wants to treat you. So in this story, we can kind of put ourselves in Ruth's shoes, and Boaz is in the place of Jesus, and this is how Jesus wants to treat you in the story. Naomi didn't remember that she had this relative. Remember, Naomi, you know, when you're going through a hard time, it's very easy to exaggerate the situation and, and feel completely hopeless. And that was Naomi. So she didn't remember that she actually had a relative that could provide for. And what we see at the end of this chapter is he is the redeemer, the kinsman redeemer, the guardian redeemer, which we're going to study more next week in chapter three. It goes on to say, and Ruth the Moabite, Now, I want you to notice how many times the author wants you to see this phrase, the Moabite, does not want you to forget that this girl does not deserve it. She is not qualified. She is not good enough. She's not the right race. She doesn't have the right blood. She doesn't have the right background. She does not deserve it at all. She is a Moabite. The Moabite people were the, the ancestors of an incestuous relationship between Lot and his daughter. His daughter got him drunk, uh, had sex with her father, had a son named Moab. Moab means from my father. It was an ethnic joke. And the whole Moabite people were born, which have been enemies of God. You're not allowed to marry a Moabite woman. Uh, it was, it was not, you know, not allowed for Jewish people to do this. And, and here's a Moabite girl living in Israel. And the author doesn't want you to forget this is a Moabite. It's amazing to me, first off, that there's an entire book in the Bible named after a Moabite. I mean, that, if that doesn't show you the grace of God, the goodness of God, the love of God, the heart of God for all people, I don't know what will. The fact that this Moabite girl has an entire book written after her. Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I find favor. Naomi said to her, go ahead, my daughter. So she went out, entered a field, and began to glean behind the harvesters. She wasn't qualified to harvest because she was a foreigner. All she could do is glean, which was pick up the leftovers behind you know, the people harvesting in the field. And this goes back to a Levitical law. In Leviticus chapter 19, it says, when you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Do not go over a vineyard a second time or pick up the grapes that have fallen. Leave them for the poor and the foreigner, and then God makes a statement. I am the Lord your God, which basically means if it wasn't for me, you'd be dead. 
If it wasn't for me, you'd be in Egypt. If I didn't part the Red Sea, the Egyptians would have killed you. Everything you have, this field that you think you own, this business you think you built, you wouldn't have that business if it wasn't for me. You would be slaves in Egypt. You would be dead in the wilderness if I did not provide for you. So I'm asking you to do this because of who I am, because nothing you have is because of you. It's all because of me. That's what God is saying when he says, I am the Lord your God. Don't forget, I parted the Red Sea so you could have this land. But you wouldn't have it without me. And so I want you to make sure that you don't, you don't use all of the field on yourself. Leave the corners. You know, don't, don't go through it a second time and pick up every scrap. Make sure you leave for the foreigner and the poor. And Ruth knew about this law, probably from Naomi. So she says to Naomi, let me go and glean in the field according to the law. Now there's a powerful, powerful principle in this passage right here. This is not a law that we have to do, but there's a powerful principle there that you should want to follow. And it's simply this, don't spend the corners on yourself. Make sure you leave the corners of your life for the poor. What does that mean? Well, how it works out in my life is my wife and I, when we do our annual budget together, first 10% goes to God. We don't even look at that. We don't even consider that. We don't touch that. It's not even a decision. It's just that is God's, we return it to him. But then every year we set aside another amount, another percentage for the poor. Every year we, we make sure we set aside the corners for the poor and we just put it into a fund and it builds up throughout the year. And then as God leads us throughout the year to give it to, you know, different type of, you know, ministry to the poor, we give it to ministry to the poor. I teach my son to do this. You know, one of the only reasons we give my son an allowance is to teach him how to handle money. So he gets his allowance. The first 10% goes to God. The second 10% goes to the poor and the third 10% goes to savings. And then we double whatever he puts into savings. Now, the second 10% that he goes to the poor, he just puts that in a box in his bedroom and it just kind of stacks up over time. And then when we go on different tips, we went to Columbia a couple weeks ago. We brought his box with him. He had about $60 in the box that he had saved up for the poor. And this is how I teach my son how to hear God's voice. Because if you, if you struggle, like, like if you're like, you know, I don't really hear God's voice well. Like when I pray, I don't really hear God speak to me. I don't hear God's voice. If you want to learn how to hear God's voice, the easiest way you will ever learn how to hear God's voice is ask him about your money because he'll always answer. Like if you ask him like where you should give, God loves to answer you on that. You may not like what he says, but you'll at least hear his voice. It'll teach you how to hear God's voice because he is a giver for God so loved the world that he gave and he wants you to look like him. And so he'll always answer that question. So if you're struggling to hear his voice, and, and I understand this, so I teach this to my son. I said, this week when we're in Columbia, you have the $60. I want you to pray. And, and I want you to listen to God. And when God speaks to you, I want you to respond. And so throughout the week, we we're around Colombia. And one day we were like on the road somewhere. And there's a lot of Venezuelan refugees right now in Colombia because of the border and just the collapse of Venezuela. It's a very horrible thing. And, and it's, it's just really ugly what's happening over there. And he saw this family sitting on the street with a bunch of young kids. And he just said, you know, God just told me to give, give the money to, to these Venezuelan refugees. And I said, great, let's do it. I just actually got a photo this morning right before service when I was, was walking down here. Uh, the pastor in Columbia just texted me and, and shed me a picture of everything they bought with the $60 and that the pastor of the church was going out today to give it to the Venezuelan refugees. And it was just moving to see how my son is learning how to make sure to leave the corners for the poor. 
I'm telling you, all throughout the Bible, God has a heart for people that give to the poor. God has a heart for the poor, and that's why he says, leave the corners for the poor. So I would encourage you, figure out what that means for you. As we keep reading, it says, and as it happened, this is where we get into one of the very first benefits of grace. I mean, this is so powerful. This is so beautiful. Um, This word here, happened, as it happened. This is one of the most incredible words when you live under the new covenant. Now, let me remind you of the new covenant quickly so, so that you understand what I'm talking about. A few weeks ago, we talked about old covenant versus new covenant. Old covenant is, is how people live before Jesus. It was kind of the Old Testament period. The best definition of old covenant I can give you is religion. Old covenant is all about how hard you work and how much you do and how deserving you are. And if you do what you're supposed to do, God will bless you. Deuteronomy says it very clearly. If you faithfully obey, then I will bless you. That's how the old covenant worked. The new covenant is if you believe, then you will be blessed. Believe what? Believe in God's goodness. Believe that it's not about you. It's not about your performance. It's not about your effort. It's not about your ability. It's about his grace. If it had anything to do with you deserving it, it could not be called grace. Grace is for people who do not deserve it. The problem with Christianity today is so many of us are trying to mix the old covenant and new covenant together, and it's so subtle we don't even see it happening. But Jesus said it very clearly. You cannot put new wine into old wineskins. It'll burst. You can't take a new piece of fabric and sew it into an old you know, shirt because it'll stretch. It'll tear. In any time you try to mix the old covenant and new covenant together, you're going to feel torn on the inside. You're going to feel a stretching. You're going to feel a tearing. It does not work. See, and the problem is we begin this journey by grace, and then all of a sudden something happens, you know, when we start maturing as Christians, and we start thinking, okay, now I need to earn it. Now I need to deserve it. Now I need to show God that I was worth it. Now I need to at least, you know, pull my weight in in Christianity and make sure I'm at least doing my job. And what happens is we begin to rely on our own effort. And I believe we work hard, but we work hard because of grace. We don't work hard for grace. And that's the difference. A lot of us are working hard because we're trying to earn something from God. But if I can get you to the place where you believe in grace, where you believe in God's goodness, I'm going to show you today a picture of what your life could look like if you will completely rely on God and not in your own ability, not in your own effort. And if you're sitting here today and you feel like, well, I'm just not good enough. Like, God can't bless me. Look at my past. Look at, look at the things I've done. I don't, I don't deserve it. That's what qualifies you for it. That's why it says the Moabite, the Moabite, the Mo- So anyone here today that feels like, you know, God can't do it for me, I'm not good enough, the Moabite, the Mo- if he can do it for a Moabite, he can do it for you. And that's what this entire chapter is about. As it happened, she found herself working in a field that belonged to Boaz, the relative of her father, Elimelech. Here is the very first benefit of grace. I call it the divine happening. When you live under grace, it's just you happen to be in the right place at the right time. There's these divine happenings that take place in your life that you could not predict, you could not control, you could not strategize. God just showed up. Like you, you happened to be in the elevator standing next to someone. You didn't even plan on being in that building today, but you're out in the building, riding in an elevator, starting a conversation, and all of a sudden you're in the most lucrative business deal you've ever been in. And it wasn't something you planned. It wasn't something you orchestrated. It wasn't something you strategized. It was a divine happening in your life. See, this is what Proverbs teaches. A man's heart plans his way. Like, I think I know what I'm doing. I think I have a plan for my life. But it's actually the Lord that directs his steps. I look at my life. 
few years, about 10 years ago, I'm sitting at a movie premiere in Oceanside for some Christian movie. I didn't plan on being there. I didn't want to be there that night. I was kind of tired that night, but I end up at this movie premiere in Oceanside talking to this guy in the lobby for about 30 minutes about church and ministry. And then the next thing I know, I'm getting emailed from the the former interim pastor of this church asking me if I could help with it. And all of a sudden, I become the pastor of this church because I was at a movie premiere I didn't plan on being at. It was a divine... Can I tell you, this church has done more for me than anything I've done for this. It was a divine happening because of God's grace that absolutely transformed my life. Not something that I planned. It wasn't in my heart's plan. But God was directing my steps. When you live under God's grace, there are divine happenings that take place. We keep reading. It says, just then Boaz arrived from Bethlehem and greeted the harvesters. Let me just stop for a moment and point out that the author of Ruth felt it was very important for you to notice how Boaz greeted people. This detail doesn't need to be in the story. You can read the story without this detail. It doesn't help the story. It doesn't carry the plot along anywhere. It just points out how Boaz greeted people. Why? Because it wants you to see his character. It wants you to see that Boaz is a man of God. This is not a common greeting of the day. This this greeting carried weight. It was heavy. It wasn't just like, how are you doing? Good, fine, great, see you later. No, it was much deeper than that. Boaz greeted the harvest, the Lord be with you. They respond, the Lord bless you. If you want to know a person's relationship with God, you need to find out how far God is saturated into the very ordinary everyday details of their life. And that's what we see in Boaz. Boaz has a heart for God that God has saturated the very ordinary, very everyday details of his life. We keep reading, Boaz asks the overseer. Now let me just throw something in here for you because this is a beautiful picture when you, when you see it because you see this all throughout the Old Testament. And again, there's a lot of richness. There's a lot of symbolism here. Uh, who is this unnamed servant, this unnamed overseer? Because you see him a lot in the Old Testament. All throughout the Old Testament, there's an unnamed servant. Abraham had an unnamed servant that went and found a wife for Isaac. We never know his name. Joseph had an unnamed servant that got all of the food prepared for his brothers when they, when they came to Egypt. There's always an unnamed servant. In the, who is the unnamed servant? It's the Holy Spirit. It's a picture of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. Boaz is this picture of Jesus and then his spirit going to prepare things for him all throughout. So anytime you see the unnamed servant in the Old Testament, it's a picture of the Holy Spirit. Boaz asked the overseer of his harvesters, who does this young woman belong to? The overseer replied, she is the Moabite. She's the undeserving one. She's the one that's not qualified. She's the wrong race. She's the one that's not good enough. Again, it's, it's, it's amazing how many times it says the Moabite in this chapter because it does not want you to forget God's grace. It does not want you to forget what's available to you if you'll stop trying to deserve it, stop trying to earn it, and stop trying to be good enough. The Moabite who came back from Moab with Naomi, she said, please let me go glean and gather among the sheaves behind the harvesters. So even though it was a law, she still felt like she had to ask because even though it was a law, man's heart is wicked and man doesn't always let you do what what you should be able to do. And so she asked, she came into the field and has remained here from morning till now except for a short rest in the shelter. So we see that she's a very hard worker. Now we get into the next benefit of grace. So Boaz said to Ruth, my daughter, listen to me. Don't go and glean in another field and don't go away from here. Now, 
Let, let me just throw something in for free today. This is not part of the message. This is just for free. Um, there are a lot of people in our church who want to marry a godly husband, a godly wife. Can I tell you, don't go glean in another field. See, we see, we see so many people who want a, a godly spouse, yet they're gleaning in the wrong field. Like, you're not going to get a godly spouse if you're gleaning in the wrong field. You're going to get in trouble if you glean. and You're going you're to harvest from the field you glean in. And if you want to harvest a godly spouse, make sure you're gleaning in the right field, if that makes sense. So many people are out gleaning in the world. You know, I know they're not a believer, but, you know, you know they might, they're a good person. Glean in the right field is all I'm trying to say. Um, that was for free. <laughs> Stay here with the women who work for me, he says. Why? Because she might get abused in another field. She's a foreigner. She's a widow. She's in poverty. She could be sexually abused, emotionally abused, racially abused, physically abused. So he's like, listen, you need to stay here. Watch the field where the men are harvesting and follow along after the women. I have told the men not to lay a hand on you. And Boaz had to tell him because, again, she was a foreigner. I want you to understand who this woman is. I mean, she was, she was, I mean, she was going to be abused if there wasn't somebody watching over her. It goes on to say, and wherever you are thirsty, now this, this is a picture of God's grace right here. I'm telling you right now, this is a picture of how Jesus wants to treat you. And whatever you are thirsty, go and get a drink from the water jars the men have filled. This is a Moabite. This is a foreigner. This is completely uncommon what is taking place here. You don't, you don't tell the poor and the foreigner this. But God is saying, listen, if you're thirsty, Jesus said, if you're thirsty, come after me and drink. I'll give you living water, water that will never run dry. Again, this is a picture of Jesus all throughout the Old Testament. At this, she bowed down with her face to the ground. She asked him, why have I found such favor in your eyes that you notice me, a foreigner? Why are you? See, this, this is what we say to Jesus. Why have you noticed me? I don't deserve you. I don't deserve you dying for me. I don't deserve you saving for me. I don't deserve your grace. I don't. Why have I found such favor, a foreigner, a sinner, undeserving, unqualified? Look at my past. Look at my history. Look at the mistakes I've made. Yet this is one of the beauties of God's grace. We call it divine favor. One of the things that happens when you realize that it's all about Jesus and not about you, when you stop trying to earn it, when you get rid of the old covenant and you embrace the new covenant and you begin to realize it's all because of what Jesus did, not because of what you did, not because of what you're doing, there is a divine favor that comes over your life and things happen that just aren't normal. Things, when you, it's, it's amazing to me, people with that positive outlook, good things just keep happening to them. Why? It's a divine favor. When you know that God loves you, when you know that you're God's favorite, when you know that God has a picture of you up on his refrigerator in heaven and he's showing you off to everyone and he carries you around in his iPhone and he's always scrolling pictures of you to all of his friends, when you know that God feels that way about you, then, then favor follows your life. Remember in, uh, remember in Luke chapter 17, Jesus healed 10 lepers. Only one of the lepers came back to say thank you. Why? Why did only one come back to say thank you? Because the other nine were Jews. The one that came back to say thank you was the only one who wasn't a Jew. See, he was the only one that could receive the healing, receive the miracle on the basis that he didn't deserve it and that he didn't earn it. All the others could have said, well, we're Jewish, we're the right blood, we're the right race, we follow the law, we follow the old covenant. Of course, of course he healed us. Look at the way we live. 
the one that was a Samaritan, the one who wasn't a Jew, had no basis for receiving anything from Jesus but grace. But the mercy of Jesus alone, and it caused his heart to bring him back to say, thank you. Every time the Bible says the God of Jacob, the God of Jacob, that means the God of grace. Because if anyone in the Old Testament did not deserve it, it was Jacob. Jacob was a swindler. He was a cheat. He was a liar. He robbed his father. He robbed his brother. And God associates his name with Jacob. That's hilarious to me. Like out of everyone in the Old Testament, God says, okay, I'm going to associate with Jacob. Like I am the God of Jacob. I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I'm a God of a guy who gave his wife to another guy to have sex with her, and then his son did the same thing, and now this cheat and this liar, I'm, I'm there. It's a, it's a God of grace is what it is. It means I'm a God of people who don't deserve it. I'm a God of people who aren't good enough. I'm a God of people who come to me and rely on me for my goodness and not their own goodness. It's beautiful. And I'm telling you, when you live that way, there is divine favor. God gives you what you do not deserve. Things happen that you do not deserve when you live under his grace. Here's the next thing we see, verse 11. Boaz replied, I've been told about what you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband. Now, if you've ever been through one of our Freedom Small Groups, if you haven't, I would encourage you to go through one. But if you have been through one, you know one of the things we teach is there's two ways to look at the Bible, the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. There's two ways to view things. It's very easy to interpret this passage, the knowledge of good and evil, and think what it's talking about is her performance and her effort. But when you get into the prophecy at the end, you realize it wasn't necessarily in her performance. It was something God was up to. And I want to show this to you. It says, so I've been told all about what you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband, how you left your father and mother and your homeland and came to live with the people you did not know before. And then look at this. May the Lord repay you. May the Lord bless you. May the Lord put grace and favor on your life for what you've done. Now, if you're not careful, you're going to think that what she done was how hard she worked and how well she took care of her mother-in-law and she earned it. So this isn't grace. She earned it. No, no, no. Because it goes on to say, may you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel. And here's what it described that she did. So when it talks about the reward, here's why she's being rewarded. Under whose wings you have come to take refuge. So what did she do? She ran to God to take refuge. This is a beautiful picture we see a lot in the Old Testament, going under the wings of God. It's the picture of a baby chicken running to its mother when it's scared. You know, a little baby chicken, when it gets frightened, it'll run, it'll run and hide under its mother's wings. It'll hide in its mother's shadow, knowing that mom will protect me. Now, think about this for a moment. God is saying, because you were like a baby chicken that got scared and you ran to me for protection, you ran to me for refuge, now I'm going to reward, I'm going to bless you for that. I'm going to reward you for that. That wasn't a selfless act of love by the baby chicken. That was self-preservation. That was selfishness for the baby chicken. I mean, the baby chicken is trying to save its own neck by running to the mother for protection. What this shows us is God will look for any excuse at all to bless you. We call this divine paradox. God is looking for any excuse to bless you. He's looking for any reason at all to put grace on your life, to put favor on your life, to do something special for you. He just wants the excuse. And I know some of you are thinking to yourself, yeah, but there's a lot of stuff we have to do. Let me, let me be very clear. Anything Jesus demands of you, he first supplies you with the ability. Anything he demands from you, 
It's always first for your best interest. Like anything he says you need to do is always going to benefit you. But he doesn't just demand something from you. He first supplies you with the ability to do it. Let me show it to you. He says, love the Lord your God. See right there, pastor. It's, it's not about just, you know, there's things that we have to do. Yes. He says, love the Lord your God. He puts this demand on your life. And not only that, you got to love your neighbor. And then he goes on another passage and says, then you need to love one of that. Just love everyone. This demand is on your life that you need to love God. You need to love your neighbor. You need to love one another. So he puts this demand on us. But what John wrote before he wrote this was that God already provided the supply. First John says we love because he first loved. So he puts a demand on us, but he gives us the supply ahead of time. So he says, yes, I'm going to ask you to do this, but I'm going to give you everything you need to do it with. I'm going to ask you to do this, but I'm going to give you all the strength to do it. And then what's what, what the paradox of it is then he goes back and gives you the credit for doing it. So he gives you the ability to do it. You do it. And then he gives you the credit for doing it. Like he's looking for a reason to bless you. Let me give you one more. Um, Remember after Jesus was resurrected from the dead, the disciples are out fishing all night. They kind of gave up and quit and, and went back to their old business. They're fishing all night. They don't catch any. These are professional fishermen. They don't catch any fish. Jesus in the morning is standing on the shore. And what does he say to the disciples? He said, cast your nets on the other side. Right. Yeah. Cast your nets on the other side. They cast it on the other side. All these fish jump into their net and they catch the largest like catch they have ever had in the history of their fishing business. It's breaking their boat. They got to call other boats over for help. And then what does Jesus say to them? This is, this is divine paradox. This is hilarious to me. Jesus says to them, bring some of the fish, which you have just caught. <laughs> he gave them credit. They, they fished all night, caught nothing. They didn't catch anything until Jesus ordered the fish to jump into their net. And then he gives them the credit for what he, so don't ever take credit. I'm just telling you, I don't care how hard you work. Don't ever take credit. Don't ever take credit because the very hard work you put into it was God giving you the power, the ability, and the brains to do it. This is divine paradox. God is just looking for an excuse to bless you. He's looking for a reason to do something good in your life. He just loves to do it. Let's keep reading. She goes on to say, may I continue to find favor in your eyes, my Lord, she says. You have put me at ease by speaking kindly to your servant, though I do not have the standing of one of your servants. So again, she stays humble. She doesn't take credit. She doesn't feel like she deserves it. She's just staying in a position of grace. It says, at mealtime, Boaz said to her, come over here. This is incredible. This is, the, this is the widow. This is the foreigner. This is the Moabite. And he says, come over here. Have some bread. Not just, I'm not going to give you leftovers. I'm not going to give you scraps as we're done eating. Come sit at the table. Have some bread. And you can even have some of the olive oil and vinegar with it. Like this is such a beautiful picture of how Jesus wants to treat you. How Jesus wants to take us, the Moabites, bring us to his table and feed us. He goes on to say, when she sat down with the harvesters, he offered her some roasted grain. She ate all she wanted and had some left over. Where else do we see that statement in the Bible? Remember the feeding of the 5,000? They ate all that she, they wanted and then had 12 baskets left over. I'm telling you, the symbolism here is so rich. It doesn't want you to miss what this is about. So what we see here is divine provision. When you live under God's grace, there is divine provision in your life. God provides. 
It doesn't matter what's happening around you. God always provides for his people who are living under grace. He takes care of the situation. There will always be enough when people put God first, when people live under his grace and just say dependent on him, there's always going to be provision. And it's not always going to make sense. I remember you know, years ago, we had a mother sitting in our growth track class. And, and her husband was a low-ranking Marine, and he was deployed, and they had three young children, and they struggled every single month to get through the month. Every month, they had to borrow money from their family to feed the kids and to get through on his salary. And we were teaching in growth track, and I think it was the day I was teaching on the tithe, and she came and she said, well, I don't, I, we can't tithe. There's no way. We, we have to borrow money to get through the month on our income. There's no way we can return to God the first 10%, and in, in if we're having to borrow money right now at 100%. I said, listen, I don't know how it works. It's God's grace. It's God's favor. But when he's first and you stay submitted to him and under him, there's always provision. I said, I can't tell you what to do, but you just need to ask God and figure out what's best for you and your family. And she came back a few months later. She goes, this doesn't make sense. I said, what? She goes, we haven't got a raise. Nothing in our life changed. We started tithing. Since we've been tithing, we haven't borrowed money from my family in over three months. She said, when we lived off of 100%, we struggled to survive. Now that we're living off of 90%, 90% is actually doing more than the 100%. Why? Because of divine provision. It always goes further. It always stretches when God's grace is on it. It goes on to say, as she got up to glean, Boaz gave orders to his men. This is where it gets even, you know, look at this provision. Let her gather among the shears and don't reprimand. Don't let her glean anymore. Let her go in the harvest that hasn't been gleaned yet. Let her take it right off the stalk. And not only that, why don't you pull some of the stalk up for her? So she doesn't even have to do it herself. You just go out. This is a picture of what Jesus, Jesus wants to pull things up for you that you didn't even work for. Like he just wants to provide, for, when, when you begin to rely on his grace and you live under the new, I'm telling you, there is divine provision from the bundles and leave them for her to pick up and don't rebuke her. So Ruth gleaned in the field until evening, then she threshed the barley she had gathered and it amounted to an ephah. An ephah would be about 30 pounds or six weeks worth of bread. Here's a girl living in poverty, destitute, a Moabite, a foreigner, a widow, nothing to her name. And all of a sudden, she's eaten the best food of the day. She's drank out of the water. And now she has six weeks of food to bring home with her. This is divine provision. But there's a reason. There's always a reason to God's blessing on your life. This is what we see next. So she carried it back to town and her mother-in-law saw how much she had gathered. Ruth also brought out and gave her what she had left over after she had eaten enough. So what's the second, the, the next principle, divine impact? God blesses you to be a blessing. God blessed Ruth so she could bless Naomi. Naomi's life benefited. See, Naomi had a terrible attitude. She didn't have a grace attitude. She thought God was against her. She thought God was doing all these me. And Naomi or Ruth just decided, you know what? I'm going to trust God. I'm going to go out and I'm going to trust God and I'm going to live under grace. And God blesses her and blesses her, blesses her to the point that it overflows onto her mother-in-law. So now Naomi is being provided for because of the blessing on Ruth. And this is exactly what God wants to do for you. This is the promise we all live under, the Abrahamic covenant. The Abrahamic covenant is actually before the old covenant. 
It's the one that has been fulfilled through Christ that is still on our life today. And here's what it says. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you and I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. See, this is God's desire for those of us who live under grace. God wants to bless you so that he can make us a blessing. He wants to bless us so that we can bless everyone around us. He wants to bless us with great marriages so that we can impact our neighbors. He wants to bless us with great families. He wants to bless us in business, bless us in career, bless us in work so that we can be a blessing to everyone around us. He wants to set you free so that other people can be set free. I think of my story coming to Coastline. Years ago, I'm teaching at Fuller Seminary, just sharing my personal story, my, my testimony of how God set me free from years and years and years of living under a sex addiction. I didn't know that day that there was a wife sitting in that class who would go home that night, ask her husband, are you still struggling? And for the first time, he gets honest about his journey. She says, well, I know what you're going to do. You're going to do this, this, and this. I heard this pastor today, didn't even know my name. And now they're on our staff building our marriage ministry. All because I allowed God to set me free because of his grace and his favor. Now we have other people getting free. God always blesses us to be a blessing. It's not just about us. It's always about the impact that it has beyond us. Let's look at the next two and then we'll close. Her mother-in-law asked her, where did you glean today? Where did you work? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. I'm telling you, blessed, blessed be the name of Jesus for taking notice on us. Then Ruth told her mother-in-law about the one at whose place she had been working. The name of the man who I worked with today is Boaz, she said. The Lord bless him, Naomi said to her daughter-in-law. He has not stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead. This word kindness is one of the most powerful words in the Hebrew language. If you, if you study the Jewish culture, there are blogs and websites and books dedicated. This is not just kind, meaning like he was a nice person. This is the Hebrew word chesed. Chesed. It, it is God's loving kind. It'd be the equivalent of agape love in the Greek. And what's powerful about this word kindness is it's covenantal love. It's not just being nice, it's a covenantal love. So what we see here is divine kindness, chesed. It's God's covenantal love. And here's how God's covenantal love works. It's based on who he is, not on who we are. When God made this covenant, this said covenant with Abraham, God made the covenant with Abraham, not vice versa. What does that mean? It was never, Abraham didn't make the covenant with God. So it was never based on Abraham's performance, on Abraham's keeping his end of the deal. It was always based on God keeping his end of the deal. This is a picture of grace in the gospel and the Old Testament that God makes a covenant with us because of who he is, not because of who we are. So the covenant is not based on whether or not we perform, whether or not we deserve it, whether or not we're good enough. It's based on God's loving kindness in who he is. This is why Ruth's great-grandson would go on to write years later, because your chesed, your loving kindness is better than life. There's nothing as good as this in all of life. The fact that you love me. And David was not a perfect person. David had many, many flaws, but he understood God's covenant kindness with him. Cassette, beautiful. Ruth goes on to say, she added that this man is our close relative. Naomi says this, he is one of our guardian redeemers. Now we're going to dig into this next week and it's going to be beautiful. You're going to see the clearest picture of Jesus 
Beautiful. Now let me close. Here's the last principle we see. Then Ruth, again, the Moabite, how many times in this chapter does it want you to know, this girl doesn't deserve it. She doesn't qualify. She's not good enough, but I'm blessing her. It's my grace. It's, it's all about who Boaz is, not about who Ruth is. Can I tell you, it's all about who Jesus is, not who you are. It's so beautiful in this chapter. Then Ruth the Moabite said, he even said to me, stay with my workers until they finish harvesting all my grain. Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, it will be good for you, my daughter, to go with the women who work for him because in someone else's field, you might be harmed. Make sure you stay in the right field. Too many people leave the field that God put them in. Don't leave the field that God puts you in. So Ruth stayed close to the women of Boaz to glean until the barley and wheat harvest were finished, and she lived with her mother-in-law. This last one is divine protection. I'm telling you, when you live under God's grace, there's divine protection. Doesn't mean you don't ever go into a storm. It means you're protected in the middle of it. The clearest picture of divine protection I can give you in the Old Testament in the Bible is the book of Daniel. Read the first half of the book of Daniel. You'll see two incredible stories of God's divine protection. One is Daniel in the lion's den. Daniel prayed. Uh, our, our, our student pastor yesterday taught about this in our prayer meeting. Daniel prayed, and as a result, he was thrown into a lion's den. So he still got thrown into the lion's den, but divine protection was God shut the mouth of the lions. He should have been killed. He should have been devoured by that tragedy, by that situation, by that challenge, by that adversity. But God divinely protected him in the middle. You're going to go through adversity. You're going to go through challenges. What divine protection is, when you're under the new covenant, when you're under grace, divine protection doesn't necessarily prevent the tragedy from happening, but it protects you in the middle of it. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the book of Daniel were thrown into a fiery furnace, but they had grace. Why? Because there was a fourth man, grace, Jesus, walking with them in the fiery furnace. The Bible says they were thrown into the fiery furnace, so they went into the fire. They went into the challenge. But it says God brought them out, and when God brought them out, they didn't even have the smell of smoke on their clothes. I know a lot of Christians who survive this tragedy. They survive the adversity, but they come out smelling like smoke. Yeah, they survive. They got through it, but they come out in rags. I mean, they come out smelling like smoke. They come out all beat up from what they went through. If we'll stay under grace... It will stay under the new covenant. It will, it will stay completely reliant on who he is and not on who we are. We're going to work hard, but we're not working hard to get anything from God. We're working hard because we've already received it all. That's the difference. If we'll stay in that position of grace, there's divine protection over our life. Yes, we'll get thrown into fiery furnaces, but we're going to be able to walk out without even the smell of smoke being on our clothes. Yeah, we're going to go through hard times, but we're going to walk out saying in all things, God's going to take this situation. He's going to turn it around for good according to his purpose. Yeah, it wasn't pleasant. I didn't necessarily enjoy it, but I know God's taking everything I've been through and he's working it for his good and he's protecting me in the middle of it. I remember the story of the disciples on the Sea of Galilee. The Sea of Galilee is a tiny lake in Israel. You can stand on one side of the lake, see all the way to the other side of the lake. It's a tiny lake. These guys grew up on this lake. There was a storm so bad they thought they were going to die. And Jesus is taking a nap in the back of the boat. Can I tell you, if Jesus is in your boat, you're going to be okay. If grace is in the boat, you're going to be okay. It doesn't matter how bad the storm is. It may be terrifying. 
It may be something you've never experienced, never seen before. If you've got grace with you, and let me be clear, Jesus is grace. John chapter 1 says the law was given, grace and truth came, meaning grace is Jesus. If grace is with you, you're going to be okay. So I'm asking you, buy in to the new covenant. Be under God's grace. Realize that it's not about how good you are. It's not about how well you perform. In fact, if you're sitting here today struggling with not feeling good enough, if you're struggling today, it's like, man, I just don't deserve God. I don't deserve his blessing. I don't deserve God answering my prayers. I mean, look at what I've done. I've made a mess of my life. I've made all these mistakes. I've, I've blown it. You're fully qualified. That's all that means. That's all that means. This morning at our 7.30, we do a Q&A session at the end, and, and, and somebody asked me about this. Well, what do you do when you feel guilty? When, when Satan reminds you of what you've done, I just say, you know what? You're absolutely right. I can't, I can't deny it. I did do that. Because Satan loves to bring up my past against me. He's like, he loves to like bring up my past and rub my nose in it. It's like, look, look what you've done. How can you call yourself a pastor? How can you say you love Jesus? Look what you've done in your life. I've learned to respond like this. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I did do that, but Jesus paid for it. I'm not, I'm not attached to that anymore. It was already paid for. It's like, yes, I can't deny the fact that I did that, but I don't have to feel guilty over it anymore because Jesus covered that in his blood and he doesn't have to die again. And so I'm not going to put Jesus through another death by me trying to pay for that all over again. His death was good enough for me beautiful picture of grace. Would you close your eyes with me? Father, in the name of Jesus, I pray that this chapter about Ruth the Moabite would sink into our hearts that you are a good God. You are a God full of grace, that you are looking for people who do not deserve it, who do not qualify, who are not good enough, who don't have the right background, don't have the right past, so that you can show off your grace and your goodness in their life. You took this girl, Ruth, who is a Moabite, and you created one of the most beautiful stories in the entire Bible. Not because she deserved it, but because of you. And God, you allowed this to be recorded for our benefit so that you could tell every single person here today that that's exactly what you want to do in their life. And so I pray that people would begin to trust in your grace. Put faith in, in who you are and not in who they are. In the name of Jesus, amen. Would you stand with me? We're gonna close with one song of worship. During this song, our prayer team will be available. If you're struggling to receive grace today, come talk to somebody on our prayer team. If you're struggling with guilt or shame, we'd love to pray with you. If you're not a Christian, and I tell you, come to Jesus today. I can't give you a clearer picture of what it means to give your life to God than what we talked about today. That Jesus wants to shower you with his grace. And he will forgive you and he will take you no matter who you are, what you've done. Talk to somebody on our prayer team. We'd love to pray with you today. We're going to sing this one song and then we'll be dismissed.